Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I was reading the story in The New Yorker about tennis grunts. And as you know, I'm a tennis fan, and we've already talked about how grunting can help a player hit harder. I like how we've talked about tennis grunting multiple times. (laughs) I do remember this fact that actually there is a slight advantage to grunting when you hit because it... I guess it kind of muffles the sound of the ball hitting the racket, so you don't know the precise moment when it hits, right? Yeah, that's right. But the article was about something slightly different. So uh, apparently this researcher published a paper on how just by studying the grunts during a game, you can actually predict which opponent is going to win. And the researcher came up with this massive taxonomy of grunts, and (laughs) he analyzed the tones and the pitches, and he came up with this system that actually beat bookies' best guesses. Oh, wow. But what was most interesting was that the researcher researcher published this paper in a journal called Animal Behavior, and he only came to the conclusion because it mimicked what he was studying in red male deer. (laughs) Like, the deer actually face off in this grunt match where they bark at each other from a few feet away, and it's what the New Yorker referred to as a volley of roars. Hmm. But as one starts becoming more dominant, the other's grunts weaken and get thinner, and eventually they lose the match and the opportunity to mate. That's so funny. So, But it works the same way in tennis or what? Yeah, basically. So when the grunting is stronger, you can tell which player is controlling the game. But the whole story made me think, like, why do male deer use grunting at one another as a way to win the mate's affections? And why don't they do dances or something more creative, like build things? And mm-hmm. what exactly are the strangest courtship tricks in the animal kingdom? So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, drafting, what is that, a Craigslist ad? Mm-hmm. In search of a skydiving, skydiving. partner. Yeah. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And if that sounds like a weird <laughs> way to find a companion... 
Well, I think you're right. It is a weird way. <laughs> well, in his defense, Tristan's plan was inspired by the mating habits of bald eagles. So bald eagles actually use a special kind of skydiving when they're testing out potential mates. So first, the lovebirds fly super high, and then they lock their talons together and start tumbling and cartwheeling towards the ground. This is a move that researchers actually refer to as the death spiral. The death spiral, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it gives you an idea of the stakes. And the birds mostly let go before they hit the ground. But the whole thing is a test so the eagles can judge each other's fitness and whether they're good enough for each other to be a match. And if they are, they'll actually mate for life and they won't have to do this sort of dating technique thing again the next year. Wait, though, I'm, I'm back to Tristan. Like, is that what he's basing his plan on or what? I think so, and it's why my motto is always never take dating advice from birds of prey. That's pretty good advice mm -hmm. there, Mango. Well, <laughs> you know, the animal kingdom is full of plenty of other equally dangerous and complex or just downright bizarre mating habits. You know, you think about, like, the fist-pumping fiddler crabs to the OCD bower birds. It's, it's a wild world out there when it comes to the animal love lives, and so— with that in mind, we thought it'd be fun to devote an entire episode to some of the weirdest and most surprising courtships from all kinds of different species. So we'll look at all the biological reasons behind each animal's preferred method of attraction, and who knows, maybe we'll pick up a few tips along the way. Well, probably not for these first few because I thought we could follow Tristan's lead and get some of the scarier mating habits out of the way first. And okay. if you look into it, there are actually a lot of those. So humans have the luxury of thinking of sex in positive and pretty pleasurable terms. But for most other animals, sex is strictly for survival, where creating offspring is really the only goal. And many of the tactics for getting there tend to be pretty unpleasant. Mm. So there's this biologist, Karen Bonder, and this is how she put it. From bugs to mammals and everything in between, the scene is set for violence, conflict, and war. Good There's gosh. no champagne, no roses. <laughs> so on that note, where do you want to start? Well, I don't know if I want to talk about war, but I, mm -hmm. I do want to start with Arabian camels. Now, these are the one-hump camels that you'll find mainly in the deserts of like the Middle East and in Africa. Sure. And while they do have all kinds of cool ways to help their bodies retain water and beat that scorching heat where they live— the males of the species also have this really gross adaptation that they use just to let the lady camels know they're in the mood. So I like the word gross. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's called a dulla, and it's basically this inflatable air sac in the male camel's throat. So when one of these guys is ready to mate, they'll puff up their dulla, and once it's nice and big, they flop it out of the side of their mouth for all the females to see. Uh. How did I not see one of these things before until we were doing the research for this episode? Had you seen one before? No. And the thing is just nasty. Like, it's pink and slimy and definitely doesn't look like something you'd want hanging out of your boyfriend's mouth, I don't think. But <laughs> apparently, that's what camels are into. I mean, that does sound disgusting, but is that where it ends? Like, do they just flop this gross air sac out of their mouths and then just the ladies come running? <laughs> well, you'd think, but actually, it's just the beginning. So once their dollars are inflated, the Arabian camels start gurgling their spit to produce this deep, low mating sound. Mm -hmm. And this gurgling gets so intense that the camels start foaming at the mouth, <laughs> which is, of course, just like that makes their dollars that much grosser. But if that isn't enough to catch a lady camel's eye, the males will then, you know, they use use a, a good trick. They, they pee on their tails and then wave them around to spread sure. the pheromones through the air. It's just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they seem like a bunch of Casanovas, but <laughs> it, it does remind me of male hooded seals and how they inflate this uh, special part of their nostrils to attract a mate. 
So you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that part of the nasal membrane that's actually called the hood, and that's what gives the seals their names. And when they blow it up to full size, it looks like a big foot-long pink bubble just sticking out of their nose, oh, and God. it is so <laughs> gross. I mean— it's also amazing that, like, so many different species would be attracted to having, like, giant skin blooms erupt from your face. Uh, it's just so weird. But but speaking of things <laughs> erupting out of faces, that's just apparently what we're doing here today. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Ime mustache toad? Uh, I haven't, but I love this idea of, like— Little toads with handlebar mustaches on them. <laughs> well, that would be much cuter than what this thing <laughs> actually does. So for one month a year, all the male Ime toads grow a row of extremely sharp facial spikes. And these all are just above their mouth. Sure. And these spikes are tough enough that they grow straight through the toad's skin. They're actually made of keratin, which is the same substance that our fingernails are made out mm -hmm. of. But the best part about these spiky whiskers is their name. Scientists refer to these as nuptial spines, which is just so sweet, don't you think? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I, I feel like I don't know enough about them to judge them. So what, what are they doing with these nuptial spines? Well, they're really for defense more than anything else. And if you think about breeding season, it can be pretty competitive for a lot of animals. And, of course, these toads are no exception to that. So the males will frequently fight each other for the best nesting sites. And these nuptial spines are their weapon of choice. So basically the toads try to get their spikes underneath an opponent so they can flip him over. And the spikes are really well suited for this. And if any of them are broken off during a tussle, they actually just grow right back. And then once the breeding season is over, they all fall off naturally. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I do like this idea of just watching these tiny frogs poke at each other with their mustaches <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> just for the right to mate with a woman. Yeah, but, just being uh, a lady toad and being like, they're doing that for me, <laughs> just spiking each other. It's pretty amazing. So uh, speaking of weird uh, habits, th there's this uh, tiny marsupial in Australia. It's called the antagonist, and they kind of look like a mix between a rat and a mole. And they go through an absolutely excruciating breeding process. It's actually called speed mating, which mm. makes it sound cooler than it actually is. <laughs> but basically, every year around springtime, all the males go into this testosterone-fueled frenzy. And for the next two or three weeks, they just mate around the clock. Like, this isn't an exaggeration. <laughs> like, these guys stop eating, stop sleeping. They just go from partner to partner. They spend 14 hours straight with each one. It's, it's just crazy. Lord. I mean, how do they sustain that kind of pace? You'd think all the males would just keel over at some point. So that's the thing. They do. Like, oh, all okay. the adult males were born after the previous year's mating season. <laughs> but not a single one of them is going to live that full 12 months. Like, wow. they literally mate themselves to death. And it's during that two or three three-week bender, and it is grisly, too. Their fur falls out, they go blind, they get these uh, internal bruisings, and uh, hmm. and then they just keep on mating. Ultimately, it's the male's testosterone levels, which are just sky high, that kind of proves their undoing. And this is how Wired breaks it down. Quote, while the testosterone mobilizes all the sugars in the antagonist's body, so it doesn't need to feed for the three-week orgy, it also glitches the mechanism responsible for regulating the production of cortisol, a stress hormone that in small amounts results in bursts of energy and higher pain tolerances. With runaway levels of cortisol, though, the male's bodies literally begin to fall apart. Bone density plummets, blood sugar levels go nuts, their immune systems essentially degrade to worthlessness as open sores form and never heal. Of course, females are also quite stressed during all of this, but they don't produce anywhere near the same levels of testosterone, so their cortisol regulation remains normal. 
Well, and then the females, if they survive, which I guess most of them do, they have to go through that nightmare all over again the next year. So, yeah, it seems pretty rough for all involved. Yeah, I, I mean, the one good thing is that they do get a little bit of peace and quiet once that year's crop of males have all died out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the females get to catch up on some rest. And then, like, a, a few weeks into the spring, the forests fill with insects for them to feast on. And, you know, now that half the population is gone, it's just easier to eat. It's clearly not a perfect system, though. In, in fact, there's this one ecologist named Andrew Baker who recently said, quote, if you had to sit down and design a reproductive system, you wouldn't come up with this one. <laughs> but it's the only option they've got for carrying on the species. So, you know, what are you going to do? I think stay away from Australia during mating season. That uh-huh. sounds pretty bizarre. All right, well, my next scary animal courtship belongs to the anglerfish. And this is another one where the males willingly destroy themselves for the sake of breeding. But It's a much more gradual destruction in this case, and the females definitely come out the clear winners on this one. So I actually think I've heard of this one. It's where the males are like parasites, right? That's right. And to be specific, we're talking about a particular suborder of the anglerfish. These are the serratioids, and they account for only 25 or so of the 160 known species of deep-sea anglers. Now, the females belonging to the suborder just look like what you think of when you picture an anglerfish. You've got those Huge mouths full of those needle-like teeth and that long curved stalk with a glowing yeah, tip yeah. to light the way for the smaller unlucky fish. It's just amazing to look at those things. I like love evolution it. in so action beautiful. is just unbelievable. <laughs> but the male serratioids don't look like this at all. There's no needle teeth, no hanging lantern. And the weirdest thing of all, they are about 60 times smaller than the female. 60 times. Yeah. So, in fact, in the 19th century, when scientists first started classifying the serratioids, they only worked with the female specimens because they didn't even recognize the males as belonging to the same species. It was this big scientific mystery, like, where are all the males? And it wasn't until the mid-1920s that scientists realized what was going on, and That was when one researcher finally decided to dissect these smaller fish that were attached to the side of the female anglerfish. And as it turned out, the male fish were right under their noses the whole time. They'd just been either ignored or misclassified. So I'm fascinated by this. Like, how exactly do the males get attached to the females? And are they just kind of stuck there on the sides? Yeah, so so the way that works is that the male angler starts to hunt for a mate by following this very species-specific pheromone that the females give off. And the males actually have the biggest nostrils in proportion to their heads of any other animal on the planet. So they at least have that bragging, right? (laughs) So they're well-equipped for this job. And apparently only 1% of these male serratioids ever actually find a female to mate with. That's crazy. It's hard to believe, but yeah. (laughs) So for the lucky few who do find a mate, the next step is to bite into her belly and hold (laughs) on for dear life. So then over time, the male's body fuses with the female to the point that their skin actually joins together, and so do their blood vessels. It's the weirdest thing. And then at this point, the male is pretty much set. Like, he's a total deadweight. He doesn't Uh need to see or swim or even eat like a normal fish anymore. All his nutrients come directly from his mate's blood. And so pretty soon, all the organs the male doesn't really use anymore— they just start to wither away. Huh. Now, we're, we're not talking about, like, all these internal organs. We're talking about eyes, fins, of course, the oh. internal organs, everything. And so you've basically got this little lump that just feeds off the female <laughs> in exchange for providing sperm whenever she's ready to spawn. And, 
I, it does remind me. There's there's one friend from college that I think fits this description. <laughs> might be this. I know him. Yes, yes. <laughs> that is really so creepy. And and I'm guessing serratios are pretty much monogamous, right? Like like this fusing mating process doesn't seem like it's reversible. Well, I guess you could say that the males are monogamous because yeah, there's no going back for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, once all of your organs <laughs> have basically eyes. gone away and your <laughs> eyes are no longer there, but. Anyway, it's probably because of how slim their chance of finding a mate is to begin with. So if they do manage to find somebody, they're literally not going to ever let go. But the females are a different case. I mean, they actually live up to like 30 years Hmm. or so. So once a male has been completely absorbed and can no longer supply a steady stream of sperm, the females might collect several more over the course of their lifetime. I mean, the more we talk about this, the more it just sounds like straight out of a horror movie or something. (laughs) Actually, I came across this great quote about how unbelievable this all sounds, and this was from a naturalist named Willie Beebe, and he wrote this back in 1938. And this was after the truth about this bizarre mating habit finally had been brought to light, and here's what he had to say about it. To be driven by impelling odor headlong upon a mate so gigantic in such immense and forbidding darkness and willfully eat a hole in her soft side to feel the gradually increasing transfusion of her blood through one's veins, to lose everything that marked one as other than a worm, to become a brainless, senseless thing that was a fish. (laughs) This is sheer fiction beyond all belief unless we have seen proof of it. Well, it's a very romantic process, but (laughs) what what do you say we switch gears and cover some of the sweeter, more thoughtful ways that animals use to find a mate? That sounds like a nice change of pace, Mango, but first let's take a quick break. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. 
You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the softer side of animal courtships. Okay, well, so earlier you told us about the nuptial spines, and now I think it's my turn to tell you about something called nuptial gifts. You know, the word nuptial is coming up a lot more than I would have expected, but all right, what kind of wedding gifts are we talking about here? So it varies from species to species because all animals have, you know, different sort of ideas of gift giving. But insects in particular are big on nuptial gifts. So male hangflies, for instance, attract their mates by hanging from the underside of a leaf while dangling some captured prey from their back legs. And the interested females, they'll land on the underside of the leaf and hang the same way the men do. And then they'll lower their wings to signal for the male to present the gift. And once the male holds the captured insect up to her, the female inspects its size. And if she thinks the gift is large enough, she'll stick around after dinner to mate. But if the gift isn't up to snuff, then she'll just drop off the leaf and head to the next one. (laughs) I mean, I'm curious, though, like, are nuptial gifts always some form of, like, captured prey? Or are animals interested in other kinds of presents? Or what, what are they looking for? Yeah, I mean, food is probably one of the most common nuptial gifts in the animal kingdom. Apart from insects, plenty of birds also offer food as part of courtship. And and this is mainly as a way for the male to show that he's physically fit and that he's up for the challenge of providing nutrition for their offspring, you know, if the female chooses to mate with him. But sometimes the presentation is a little lacking. Like, uh, you know, there's this bird called the great gray shrike, and it lives in a lot of different northern regions. And as Nat Geo puts it, Male shrikes impale their prey on thorns, creating a mouse kebab of sorts. Oh, then females survey the options and go for the male with the media skewer. <laughs> I mean, I guess they get some points for creativity, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, and people obviously love kebabs, so why should birds <laughs> do? But, you know, I, I do want to get back to the insect world for a minute because bugs can be just as resourceful as birds when presenting their nuptial gifts. Like, I, I was reading about how male fireflies don't just grab the nearest prey and hand it over to the mates. Instead, they actually make their own little nutrient-rich bundles, and they use a bunch of specialized glands designed specifically for gift-making. That's wild. And did you get a sense of what these bundles are made of? I mean, I I assume it's gross, whatever the answer is. Yeah, it definitely is. But, you know, researchers have actually dissected these nuptial gifts, and they've run all sorts of genetic tests on them. And it turns out the gooey little bundles are packed with more than 200 different proteins, Mm. which is kind of wild when you remember that, like, it all came from a male firefly. But what's even more impressive are some of the highly specific jobs that these proteins do. So, for instance, some of the compounds would, like, prompt the female to produce more eggs. Some of them increase the efficacy of the male sperm. There's uh, even this one toxic chemical in there that apparently makes firefly eggs taste terrible. I haven't checked on this to confirm it myself, but, uh, you know, it's obviously helpful for protecting eggs from predators, and it is all super effective. In in fact, the research team that broke down the ingredient list also found that female fireflies who consume nuptial gifts ultimately produce more eggs throughout their lifetime, and they even live longer, too. And, of course, this works out well for the males as well, you know, because the ones who produce larger gifts tend to have more offspring. I mean, I kind of wish there was an animal that gave gifts kind of like we do, you know, like something that's just a show of affection and not really useful on its own. So I'm curious, are all of these animals giving like useful types of gifts or did you come across any that were just like for fun or as a sign of affection? 
So it's funny you should say that because I was actually looking for that as well. And I found the male humpback dolphin does this. So once they find a female they like, the male will dive deep to the bottom of the ocean and search for the biggest marine sponge he could find. And then he balances that sponge on his rostrum, which is the word for that beak-like snout dolphins have. Mm. And he'll bring it up to the surface and finally toss it over to the girl he has his eye on. Rostrum. I never knew what that word was. <laughs> and, and so is this something that happens often? Like it's not just a one-off kind of thing? So that's what I was wondering too. And, and there's actually a study last year from researchers at the University of Western Australia in Perth. And they observed male humpback dolphins presenting sponges 17 different times along a 1,000-mile stretch of Australian coastline. And those instances were spread across five separate dolphin pods. So it's not like there was just this one sponge-happy family. You know, it seems to be a species-wide practice. I'm curious, though, like, what makes you think that these sponges are impractical gifts? I mean, it feels like maybe they could be using them as a a tool for something. Like, I know dolphins do that with with certain things. Yeah, that's true. So lots of dolphins use marine sponges when they're foraging for food. Like um, bottlenose dolphins, they'll stick the sponges on the tip of their rostrums so that they can scrounge for food without cutting up their noses or, you know, on, on all these, like, sharp rocks or shells that are around. It's pretty clever, but that's not what's going on with the humpback dolphins. An Australian research team monitored the females who received sponges, and according to them, the females definitely didn't use the gifts for foraging. Instead, the researchers think the whole thing might be a test of the male's character or kind of a demonstration of his quality as a mate. Hmm. So this is how Atlas Obscura explains the theory. Quote, choosing the right sponge and successfully extricating it from whatever hard thing it was attached to could be a sign of dexterity and strength. On top of that, finding and presenting the sponge may also represent a symbol of cognitive ability, the researchers report, because not just any numbskull can find a sponge that good. What's more, it is a risky operation that exposes the male to the risk of shark attacks. He's not just strong, capable, and smart, ladies. He's brave, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty adorable. And you're right, it's pretty human-like as well when you think about it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there's more than one way for animals to show their physical fitness. You can... You know, like you were talking about, you could present a big piece of food or some handsome sponge as as one option. But plenty of other animals prefer to show off their fancy footwork instead. Now, birds are, of course, especially famous for their dance moves. And we probably all remember that section on Birds of Paradise from the Planet Earth series where they use these elaborate displays of plumage and sure. intricate dance steps to attract a mate. But one performer who often gets lost in the shuffle is the humble fiddler crab. So when it's time to mate, male fiddlers gather in large groups, and they just frantically wave their one oversized claws, this courtship display. (laughs) And because that claw is so massive, this can be a really exhausting exercise for these little guys, and particularly those who aren't in the best shape. Because studies have shown that the more vigorously a crab waves his claw, the higher his fitness level. So (laughs) from a female's perspective, the more enthusiastic wavers are the crabs worth paying attention to. But doesn't that sound pathetic? Like like they're just sitting there waving their hands saying, pick me. (laughs) It feels rough. You know, but what exactly is the criteria? Like, is it just whoever waves the fastest? Well, sort of. So research on this has shown that the female fiddler crabs are sensitive to tempo changes in the male's performance. But they don't necessarily go for the faster waver. Instead, researchers have found that the females prefer the crabs that ramp up their waving over time to those who slow down or maintain a steady speed. So even if one crab is waving faster than the others, if that speed remains constant, the female will likely lose interest in favor of the guy who is gradually picking up speed. And this is because, as one researcher put it, 
Females not only take into account the current level of courtship signal production, but also any changes in rate which might provide information about a male's quality. So, for example, a decreasing rate might indicate that the male, despite appearing to be vigorous and effective as a signaler, has exhausted his energy reserves. Mm. So even though keeping a steady speed likely indicates that a crab is in good shape, female fiddlers only want the best. You know, we've always heard that before. (laughs) Female fiddlers only want the best. And in this case, that means a crab with stamina, so the one that can wave the longest and actually get faster as time goes on. So as much as I like hearing about fiddler crabs, it did sound like you wanted to talk about birds, too. Yeah, birds definitely have some of the most complicated and and maybe artful courtship rituals in the animal kingdom. And while I don't think we can do their dances justice on a podcast, the bowerbird practices a completely different art form. And it's one that we definitely need to talk about. But before we do, let's take one more quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Mango, so it's finally time to talk about bowerbirds. Now, there are 24 species of these guys spread throughout Australia and New Guinea, and they all take part in one of the world's most bizarre and complex courtship rituals. Now, unlike showier birds, male bowerbirds don't typically have dramatic plumes or bright-colored feathers to help catch the eye of a mate. So instead, they gather up twigs, and then they methodically and artfully construct these elaborate structures called bowers, which, of course, is where the birds get their name. Sure. 
And the thing to remember here is that these bowers are not nests. Instead, they're intended solely as a place for the males to just show off. <laughs> yeah, so I've read up about bowerbirds in the past, and I, I remember that uh, these structures are kind of like art galleries. Like, well, one part of the bower serves as a stage for the male to strut his stuff on, and the rest of the space is dedicated to this carefully curated display of hundreds or sometimes I want to say even thousands of objects. Yeah, and it's wild how sprawling these displays can be, but I did read that the average male lives for about 30 years, so they actually start collecting objects for their bowers at around age five, so the collectors with the biggest displays have probably been at this for a while now. But the cool thing, though, is that there's a lot of variance across the species when it comes to the design of these bowers and the objects displayed within them. So, for instance, the males of some species build these cave-like bowers, like they're kind of these rounded dens with an overhanging roof. And the front is wide open, though. And then there's just a big space there called a court where the males display their treasures. But then there are the species that take a slightly different approach. Like their bowers are a little simpler to construct. They're just two rows of vertical sticks leaned together to form this little bird tunnel. Or sometimes (laughs) the tunnel will actually be made of thatched twigs. And In this arrangement, the female enters through one end of the tunnel and then proceeds down a half-meter stretch called the avenue toward the (laughs) court of objects on the other side. I love the idea of a bird avenue. It's just so great. I do love how complicated all of this is. You know, like there's so much terminology. There are different kinds of architecture. And, you know, it does feel like these guys are just compensating for the lack of fancy plumage. Either way, though, you know, I can't tell whether these birds are hoarders or if they're artists. (laughs) I like to think that they're artists. I mean, (laughs) bowerbirds definitely have an eye for aesthetics. In fact, the birds actually keep all their objects arranged by color. And this is just so strange. But there might be rows of red things like berries and rocks or even bits of plastic, like whatever they find. Or maybe you find a bird with more subdued taste, so he decorates his court in more of a gray motif using (laughs) bones and shells and stones. But that's not even all, because male bowerbirds also incorporate visual illusions into their bowers. Like these birds, they're magicians, Mango. So I do like the sound of this. What what type of visual tricks are we talking about? No, illusions, Mango, (laughs) not tricks. Don't don't insult the bowerbirds. It's really impressive what they do. But What's really going on here is that the males are using forced perspective to make themselves appear bigger and therefore more appealing to these potential mates. So here's how it works. When a male arranges his court, he doesn't pay attention just to the color of the objects, but also to their size as well. He places them so the larger objects are farther away from the female's eye and the smaller ones are closer to her. And the effect of this is that all the objects in the court appear to be the same size from the female's perspective, you know, when she's standing at the opposite end of the avenue, for instance. So that's interesting because it's pretty much the opposite of how we usually see forced perspective use. Like, uh, think about the castle at Disneyland. It looks way taller than it actually is because the windows near the top are smaller than the ones close to the bottom. And that makes the top windows seem further away. Yeah, that's exactly right. I guess I could have saved some time and just said it's like Disneyland, but, you know, the opposite. (laughs) But um, anyway, the court appears smaller, and the male bowerbird usually stands to the side of it. And that way he can pop his head in and out of the female's view to kind of take advantage of that forced perspective and make himself seem much larger than he actually is. And he might also hold one of the brighter objects in his beak and sort of wave it at her while he does all this because, you know, it's the small touches that mean the most. Yeah, such panache. But, uh, (laughs) you know, what I'm curious about, like, 
does this work? You know, do the females really go for all this smoke and mirrors? I mean, not always. A female will just as easily fly away if she thinks the male's display lacks that polish or maybe she's just more into berries than she is the <laughs> snail shells or whatever sure. it is. But if she does like what she sees, then she'll stick around for a few minutes and that's a sign to the male that she's open to mating with him. And, you know, what's interesting is how much the strength of the visual illusion actually factors into the female's decision. Because studies have shown that the birds that employ the most effective use of force perspective were the ones most likely to be mated with. Now, as for why that is, some think that apart from making the male look bigger and stronger, the illusion is also a show of the male's intelligence and, by extension, his ability to source food for his mate and for offspring. And on some level, the females could be aware of that, and so they connect great art with being a great provider. I mean, it's weird to think that bowerbirds might have invented forced perspective like millions of years before humans started using it. Right. I mean, so bird art may have an even longer history than human art. That is crazy. So, you know, I I do feel like we talk about bowerbirds as these uh, great architects in the animal kingdom, but you don't often hear about pufferfish, who are basically the bowerbirds of the sea. And that's because they spend a full week or longer crafting these ornate circular patterns on the seafloor. And, of course, they do this in hopes of attracting a mate. But once their circle is finished, female puffers will stop by to check it out. And if they're fans of the male's work, then she'll lay her eggs in the center for him to fertilize. And so what exactly are the females looking for in these underwater crop circles or whatever they are? So, to be honest, no one really knows. Like, the males carve out the ridges and valleys of the pattern by carefully flapping their fins as they swim in circles along the seafloor. And the finished formations are typically about seven feet in diameter. So it's a lot of work for these tiny fish. I mean, the fish are only like five inches long. And it's possible the females are attracted by the show of effort. But it could also be that they simply like the aesthetics or the lines or the structures, or maybe they're attracted to the coloring and the sediment. You know, there's no way of really telling yet. But it's kind of appropriate because, you know, the patterns themselves were just as mysterious right up until a few years ago. So back in 1995, divers off the coast of Japan first started reporting these bizarre geometric formations they were finding. But no one knew who was making them until the researchers finally saw pufferfish in the act. And this was hmm. only in 2013. I mean, I love that the world is still full of these surprises kind of like this, mm-hmm. even after such a long time spent exploring it. And I've got to say, I looked up these pufferfish formations while you were talking about this, and it really is amazing what I'm seeing here. I mean, these things are so precise, and they're beautiful. Like they're like underwater sand mandalas almost. Yeah, I mean, listeners should definitely look them up. It's it's definitely worth it. All right. Well, I have to admit, I was a little skeptical about doing a show on animal mating habits, just because it could so easily turn inappropriate, or maybe juvenile even, <laughs> or maybe even wind up as like this big joke, but. It's actually pretty fascinating thinking about all of these animals and seeing how they've each learned to do what they do. And they turned out to be a lot more variants in the animal courtships than I had thought at first. Yeah, so I, I was reading this interview in the Smithsonian with this great cats curator at the National Zoo, and his name is Craig Sappho. And he had this great line, and it kind of perfectly encapsulates what you're talking about. So this is what he said. Quote, I think mating behaviors of animals in general, humans included, are really odd. And really cool when you get down to it. While it is very funny, it's also just a really interesting topic to talk about and one that people often shy away from because it's taboo. But it's pretty vital. It's the very crux of existence. Well, in the spirit of that thought, what do you say we keep things going in the fact off and rattle off a few more of our favorite animal courtships? (laughs) 
So here's a funny one. According to PopSci, female capuchin monkeys show that they're ready to mate by pouting their faces, making a loud whining sound. I mean, this is what PopSci says. Or touching males and running away. (laughs) But what happens when a male is too daft to catch on? That's when female capuchin monkeys start throwing stones at their objects of desire. (laughs) (laughs) Often they're just trying to throw close to them to get their attention, but the males do get pelted pretty often. That's kind of like the uh, the third-grade boy approach in a way. (laughs) Well, echidna, which are sometimes known as spiny anteaters, they're monotremes. So like platypus, they're these strange mashup critters that for some reason also lay eggs. And anyway, we don't know much about the echidna's mating process, but... We know that the male has a four-headed penis and that (laughs) echidnas produce an egg that gets held and carried around in a pouch. But the interesting thing about them is their courtship behavior. For some reason, and scientists don't know why this is exactly, males will line up in a single-file line behind a female and then just waddle around behind her. And the train can be up to 10 echidna long with the youngest (laughs) echidna in the back. And sometimes the echidnas switch lines, but... Mostly they just play follow the leader until the strongest males are still walking, the others have given up, and then the female chooses her mate. That's funny. So, you know, male mice who want to impress their mates sing these ultrasonic love songs. But apparently what tune they sing matters. So the lady mice are super picky, and they don't want songs that are similar to the ones that are sung by relatives. (laughs) So it turns out that flamingos are partial to makeup. Apparently, the birds secrete pigments from glands near their tail, and during mating season, they'll dab that color onto their cheekbones and then spread it all over their neck and feathers. The more they do this, the pinker they become. And the birds that are the most colorful tend to have the best luck with finding a mate. So here's one I love. You know, pandas are obviously not very good at mating, and they have super low libidos. I think we've all heard about panda porn or these panda adult films that uh, scientists use. You know, when they hear and watch other pandas mating, they get excited. But that alone doesn't up their reproduction rate. So researchers at Chengdu Panda Breeding and Research Center have actually taught them to do some special exercises to strengthen the male's hind legs. And this increases their stamina. And this combination has really worked. So according to the Smithsonian article, more than 60% of the pandas are now capable of having sex on their own, which is up from just 25% 20 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, there were so many facts to choose from for this, and I know we'll have to leave some behind. You know, I found plenty of great facts about birds literally walking on water to impress their mate or how male spiders will tap out vibrations on webs to signal to females. I think we've talked about that a little bit before, Mm -hmm. but I think this is the fact I want to end on. Scientists recently discovered evidence that dinosaurs used to shake their rumps to attract mates. Now, this is (laughs) according to a study in scientific reports, but researchers in western Colorado found 50 fossilized scrape marks left in 100-million-year-old sandstone. Now, they found patterns that are similar to both puffins and ostrich mating dances. I love the idea of these fossilized footprints, like it's evidence of dinosaurs doing the electric slide together Mm -hmm. or something. (laughs) I think the fact that you brought dinosaurs into this episode really makes you the winner. So you deserve the trophy. Close out with dinosaurs. So thanks so much. And of course, I know, as I mentioned before, there are so many mating habits that we didn't get to, so many fascinating ones out there. We'd love to hear those from you. Always love to hear your great facts. You can email those to parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But as always, thanks so much for listening.
Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.